Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Marcus Weibel from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In today's episode of Talking Robots, we'll be talking to Owen Holland, who is a professor at the University of Essex in the UK. Owen Holland has had a very diverse and interdisciplinary career, including faculty positions in psychology, electronics engineering, and computer science. He has also worked in industry, in telecommunications, and precision metrology, and he has consulted for major companies and multinationals. Among many other things, his research has addressed collective robotics, swarm intelligence software, and the history of British cybernetics. For the last few years, he has been involved in the development of the new field of machine consciousness. So, hi Owen! Hi, Marcus. Great to have you here on Talking Robots. Yeah, good to be here. You've had an eclectic research career, spanning many subject areas from reactive robot control to robot consciousness, and among, among other things, you've dedicated some of your time to reconstruct the first autonomous robot ever built by Gray Walters, his tortoise robot. Uh, could, you tell, could you tell us a bit about this? Yes, yeah, I think it's one of the most interesting projects I've ever been involved with. Um, Gray Walter was what we'd nowadays call a neuroscientist. He developed a lot of the technology um, used for EEG. Um, but he was also interested in um, building machines um, that would actually help us to understand how the brain worked. And that was the motivation behind the robots that he built. Um, he was trying to build what he called an imitation of life. And uh, the robots were really um, outwardly quite simple. He called them tortoises because the first ones he made were covered in uh, brown sort of hump-shaped shells. Um, they were wheeled robots. They had uh, two motors, one which was a steering motor and one which was uh, basically a propulsion motor. And they had uh, two sensors. Um, one was a rotating, what, we, what used to be called a magic eye, just a photo sensor, and the, uh, and the whole shell, as he called it, was a big touch sensor. And um, they had what we now call four behaviors. Um, they could uh, basically do a search behavior of the environment. If they detected a light of medium strength, then they would lock the steering and go straight towards it. If uh, the light was extremely strong, they would actually uh, move away from the light. And if they crashed into something, this would operate the touch switch. And then they would basically try and escape by uh, moving in a particular direction, indexing around, trying another direction. So they would never get stuck. So those were some of the fir or one of the first autonomous robots ever built. When was this about? This was 1948. Wow, 1948. When he began building them and they he made them public. Doing and he started off doing demonstrations in 1949. He was very keen on not just talking about things, but actually taking the robot uh, to people and letting them see it in operation. So who was this Gray Walter? Um, said he was what we'd now call a neuroscientist. He worked in a hospital. And most of his work was to do with people who were brain damaged and, in particular, people who were victims of epilepsy. So, in a way, uh, he did this in his spare time. He did it at home. <laughs> he wasn't a professional roboticist. He just had an idea. Um, and the idea was that it would be possible to produce complex behavior from very simple materials. Um, and so he said the robots had the equivalent of two neurons, two nerve cells, and these were represented by two electronic valves. 
And simply by arranging for the interconnections between these valves and the sensors to be switched in various ways, he did manage to produce not only quite complex-looking individual behaviors, but quite complex-looking sequences of behaviors. And what did you have to do to rebuild this, this robot? Very, very little. Um, I uh, managed to track down one of the, the second batch he built, which were in 1950, and this must have been, I think, in 1995. I found one of these in a basement in London, and uh, the next day I had it in my laboratory. We had to replace one capacitor, and the thing just sprang into life. It was amazing. amazing. Uh, it would be very difficult to do with a modern robot, I think. And what was, your, what was the main motivation for you personally to bring this robot back to life? It was a lot of curiosity because I'd always been aware of Gray Walter's work because when I did my psychology degree back in the 60s, in fact, it was part of the syllabus. Um, and it was also, it seemed to be some, uh, it was really the first... Uh, meaningful autonomous mobile robot and in fact we knew so little about it i had this great curiosity and i thought well the the only way to satisfy the curiosity is to see if i can still find one and uh, eventually i did and of course after we'd found one we actually built two replicas just so we'd understand even better how they worked so and now this this might be an int uh, a difficult question but what would you say have been the main advances main advancements in autonomous robotics since since then? Well, uh, what he did was, uh, in fact, it was the forerunner of uh, behavior-based robotics. And I take a position where I haven't actually, I don't think um, that um, a lot of work that I still see around me has progressed very much from what Gray Walter did. The main thing we can do now is uh, is to learn. Uh, in, in fact, he did build a learning machine as well, which he connected up to the robot, but he didn't really do any meaningful experiments. But he knew all about um, combining simple behaviors to produce complex behaviors. He knew all about interacting with the environment. In fact, he did the first uh, research on what we now call stigmergy. Um, he built six of these all together, so he was the first person to study collective robotics. So a lot of what he did, because he was the first in the field, um, covered, in fact, quite a lot of the ground. As I see a lot of what we've done since as being merely you know, dotting the I's and crossing the, crossing the T's. Um, you now work on robot consciousness, and consciousness is a, a very much debated subject in artificial life in general. Uh, could you outline the different main, di main different positions in artificial consciousness for us? Um, it's probably a little too early to do that because as a discipline, it's only been running um, uh, between five and ten years. Um, but what it does is it reflects the difference in the field of uh, what's now known as consciousness studies. So there are, there are basically two camps. Um, in one corner are the people who believe that consciousness is uh, essentially a matter of uh, information processing at a cognitive level. It's to do with um, dealing with the environment, um, perhaps uh, behaving intelligently. And in the other corner are the people who concentrate on what is known as phenomenal consciousness, um, the feeling we've all got that, wow, we're here now, and I can see something red over there, something green over there, the sort of the, the capacity to have experience. So some people in artificial consciousness are working on 
what is now becoming called a synthetic phenomenology, uh, basically how we can uh, build a machine that actually has experiences the same way as we do and uh, how we can actually uh, say something about the experiences that might be happening. And in the other corner are people who are really uh, doing what I consider myself to be extensions to AI. Uh, they're producing systems which appear to process information in the same way as humans particularly appear to process information, but they're not really interested in make, making a system that is phenomenally conscious. So those are the two major um, divisions. And within these, there are various subdivisions. Some people like myself think that embodiment is extremely important to consciousness, and so we are actually trying to build systems that are very strongly embodied. And again, there are people who think that, in fact, it's much more abstract than that, um, and so it's, they think that it may be possible to produce uh, some analogs of consciousness entirely in simulation with, uh, with no real physical embodiment. Uh, you've built a humanoid robot to investigate consciousness. And this robot, unlike all others, and there's about 70 of them currently in development all over the planet, your robot resembles humans in skeletal and muscular structure. Can you tell us a bit more about this robot? Uh, yes, uh, I'd better say a little bit about the motivation. Because we believe so strongly that embodiment is important to consciousness, we actually decided to build... Um, a robot with uh, the body as similar to ours as we could manage. Um, and so <laughs> we were thinking in straight lines. So we got um, uh, a copy of Gray's Anatomy, uh, and basically we hand-molded uh, bones, copying what we saw there. Um, and we use a particular kind of plastic for that called uh, polymorph. Um, and when we looked at how to power the thing, then we thought, well, we'll put the equivalent of muscles uh, to actually actuate it. So these are electric motors that actually pull on elastic. So they've got very similar characteristics to um, animal muscles. So it looks like a skeleton um, with uh, lots of elastic round. In fact, I don't know if people are um, familiar with the, um, the preparations of um, there are several of these touring now where they take actual corpses and they um, subject them to a particular process so you can actually see uh, the internal organs and they're captured in a uh, particular posture. Well, the robot actually looks quite like uh, one of those tableaus. And what can this robot do? It can't do very much at the moment uh, except move in a way that uh, we find and other people find is strikingly similar to the way humans move. It is not just in the kinematics. It's actually uh, got the same dynamics. It looks a bit unusual in that instead of two eyes, it's only got one eye, um, which is, in fact, a webcam, but that moves again. It's got the same degrees of freedom as the eyes that, uh, uh, that we've got. Um, and it can, at the moment, there's very little in the meaningful information uh, processing stuff happening. We've been concentrating on finding out how we can uh, make it move uh, in the particular ways we want. The other half of the project is not just the, uh, the robot, but it's actually what will be controlling it inside, and we hope to reach this stage in about six months. It actually has an internal model of itself which is a physics-based internal model, and there's a physics-based internal model of the world as well. And what we're concentrating on doing at the moment is actually getting the robot to look around the environment, um, 
process visual information and actually instantiate uh, the things it sees in the world in its physics-based internal model. And eventually it will try out actions in the internal model and the actions that seem good, it will then port to reality by actually um, downloading the motor controllers to the skeletal structure. So you built this robot to, at least partially, to investigate consciousness. And how do you plan to measure how much it is conscious or its level of consciousness? I think the only defensible uh, way of doing that is to use criteria set out by other people. Because I, if, if I set out the criteria myself, then I'd be very suspicious that I was uh, you know, declaring that uh, I'd, I'd succeeded. But Igor Alexander, <coughs> who has worked in the area of artificial consciousness for or probably 15 years now, has set out what he calls five axioms for consciousness. And these are very easy to understand, but nobody has yet built an artificial system that satisfies all five of these axioms. Um, we hope to achieve that. And there are other people, for example, uh, the philosopher Thomas Metzinger, have also set out the characteristics by which you may um, not recognize consciousness, but by which you may um, you use them as touchstones to say whether the uh, machine um, is likely to be conscious. So we'll be using other people's um, criteria applied to the robot, and we'll then be able to say, well, it satisfies all five of Alexander's criteria, for example, and therefore, by his criteria, it is conscious. So, although your current robot is, is very complex, it is still, in many ways, far less complex than the human body. Um, how far will we have to go with our robot models to achieve human-like consciousness? Do we need to, will we have to build robots with, with a heart rate and hormones? Um, I don't know. No one knows. Uh, I think um, that's something that I would like to see in that at the moment the, what we've built, it seems a bit on the dry side, uh, shall we say. Everything is uh, mechanical, even though it's mechanical in the same way our body is mechanical, but there's really no insides to it. We haven't uh, at the moment given it anything that looks like um, uh, a metabolism, although we could, in fact, uh, measure temperatures of batteries and things like that. But I do think for a complete, um, the more complete the robot is, then the more satisfactory uh, is going to be the claim that it's conscious in the same way that we are. And so I do think that uh, at least analogs of hormones and other um, non-mechanical uh, influences it would be a good idea to put them in. But again, it's complex enough as it is. <laughs> I hate to think what we'd have to go through in order to make something that was uh, you know, really very much closer to a human being. So with your robot, you're looking at robot consciousness, and I'm wondering uh, if, this, if there's a general principle behind your approach. Would you, for instance, say that for a robot to display some level of intelligence, it should look like an animal? Um... No, I I wouldn't. I think that, but the sort of intelligence that we understand best is animal animal intelligence. Uh, but there are, if you like, uh, information processing abstractions, which we can say um, amount to the exercise of intelligence. But I'm not really interested in those. I'm more interested in human, uh, if you like, animal intelligence. So that's why I'm happiest with animal-like things. Uh, I know it's not much of an answer, but it's more of a personal preference than an absolute position. Okay. Um, let's maybe slowly move to the second part and talk a little bit more about the future.
Uh, where do you think humanoid robotics research is headed? Um, well, at the moment, it seems to be headed towards the entertainment market, and I'm not so sure I'm happy with that. Uh, the other line of development is really um, to uh, augment um, capabilities where you really can't send human beings, like, for example, um, some very good work being done by NASA on uh, using uh, robots for, for example, space station maintenance. So I think the, on the one hand, we'll have these functional things. On the other hand, we will have these entertainment things. I don't think we're going to learn too much from the entertainment side. I do think we'll learn a lot from the other side. And where would you think that robotics in general is, is headed in these next 20 years? Out of doors. Um, I think we have got to show that we understand the technology well enough to produce systems that will actually cope with the real world, not, you know, not uh, toy real worlds like a university laboratory, um, but actually out there in the mud and the rain in the dynamic, uncertain environment. And the biggest challenges in this case would be, in your opinion? Well, I think the challenge... I don't think people can complain about not having computational resources anymore. That's a problem that Moore's Law has solved. And also, I think, uh, particularly the developments in, <coughs> in Japan have shown that the engineering is almost there. It's almost good enough. Sensors are still a problem, but on the other hand, we're very highly visual creatures, and uh, the technology of visual sensing, uh, cameras and so on, uh, I think that's pretty well good enough. Uh, I think the problems are really in our ability to program, in our ability to conceive of the correct architecture. I think the main obstacles to progress are not, if you like, not having the technology at the moment. It's not having the right ideas. I see that as uh, the big obstacle now. And if you'd have to make a prediction for the next 20 years, where do you think the biggest advances would be made, will be made? I think they will be made in architectures because I think everything else is going to be incremental. We'll have better batteries, we'll have better motors, we'll have better cameras and, and so on. But I do think that the main prospects for a breakthrough are going to be conceptual. For example, some of the work that I've been most impressed with in the last year or two has been uh, the work of uh, Josh Bongard and Hoblitzen um, in their idea of robots which actually dynamically build uh, internal models of themselves and then exploit these in dealing with the environment. That's very much a conceptual breakthrough and I'm sure that is something which we're going to see a great deal more of. It's a development I'm very happy with uh, indeed. And that's the sort of thing, having an idea, implementing it, it can be implemented on a fairly simple robot, but you can see immediately then that this has real possibilities and what you might do with that idea completely transcends what you might do if you suddenly have a battery technology that stores 10 times as much power as the previous generation. Um, you said one of the biggest challenges is, is to get robots outside, but now I notice a huge lack of, of robotics indoors as well. Do you think 20 years from now we'll have some robots in our homes? Uh, I don't think I'll have mobile robots in my home, um, and I'm skeptical about their usefulness in the homes of people who are um, still fit and able to do things uh, for themselves. But I do think we are going to see uh, a lot of applications in the field of robots for the care of old people.
it is very labor intensive uh, parts of the world uh, don't have the labor and i think uh, there is real opportunity for that so I, I would expect in environments in which there are old people or ill people we will see quite a lot of robots um, for the rest i think uh, for simple cleaning applications roomba has been a great success um, and i think and i can't really see it developing much uh, beyond that. I mean, my house is full of what are effectively robots anyway, but we call it the washing machine, um, uh, the dishwasher, and so on. You just want things that do things. You don't necessarily need something that uh, is an analog of ourselves as a, as a sort of um, you know, robotic slave. I don't really see any need for that. And in fact, I think if we had them, it would be a great leap backwards. <laughs> we have to retain you know, some sort of involvement in our everyday life rather than simply sit there and have our artifacts do everything for us. Well, thank you, Owen, for joining us here on Talking Robots. Yep, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. This concludes our Talking Robots interview with Owen Holland from the University of Essex about his work with Grey Walter's Tortoise Robots and his current work on robot consciousness. As always, you can find links and other information for many of the things touched on in this episode on our website. I'm Marcus Weibel. Thanks for listening. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.